Lord who rides upon the great powers, the pure powers, who controls the great powers, the numberless powers, foremost in all the breadth of heaven and earth, who received the supreme powers of Iridu, the holy place, the most esteemed place, Enki, Lord of heaven and earth, praise. You're listening to The Drumbeat Forever After. It's a podcast about the Bronze Age in the Middle East. I'm your host, Alex, and these are my guests. Kelsey. Michaela. And we're listening to Enki and the World Order. This is a Sumerian praise poem dedicated to Enki, the god of wisdom and fresh water. He also happened to be the patron god of Eridu, which we'll visit today. In Mesopotamian mythology, Eridu was the first city, so it's fitting that the god of the first city should be the one to create the world. He mentions some other gods here. An is his father, the god of heaven. Enlil is his brother, the god of kingship. He also mentions the Abzu, which was the Sumerian term for the groundwater, about two meters under the surface. Enki, the king of the Abzu, rejoicing in great splendor, justly praises himself. My father, the king of heaven and earth, made me famous in heaven and earth. My elder brother, the king of all the lands, gathered up all the divine powers and placed them in my hand. I brought the arts and crafts from the house of Enlil to my Abzu in Eridu. I am the good seaman begotten by a wild bull. I am a great storm rising over the great earth. I am the big brother of the gods. I bring prosperity to perfection. That's a heck of a lot of metaphors. (laughs) I don't know how I feel about all of those metaphors. Well, it gets better. He is the seaman. (laughs) He is the seaman, and uh, that that metaphor continues. It gets more complex in a bit. What? You'll see. So when he says, I brought the arts and crafts, He's referencing the same arts and crafts that he gave to Inanna in episode 9. If all of these exist in the same chronology, he apparently got them from Enlil. So this particular myth doesn't have a very gripping plot. Most of it relates Enki, creating every aspect of the world, and it goes great and everyone is happy about it. It's worth reiterating that almost all surviving Sumerian literature was written by temple scribes during their day jobs as propagandists for the temples. So if it seems like it's glorifying the god of the temple to the exclusion of a compelling narrative, that's kind of because it is. Here he blesses the overseas trade with the countries of Dilmun, Magan, and Melukha, which correspond to modern Bahrain, Oman, and Pakistan. These were all major overseas trading partners of Sumer in the 2000s BCE. He says, Let the lands of Melukha, Magan, and Dilmun look upon me, upon Enki. He issues a specific blessing for the land of Melukha, which probably corresponded to the Indus Valley or Harappan civilization. Melukha might be cognate with the Sanskrit word Melecha or Melecha, which referred to the indigenous people of Bronze Age India. If this is the region he's talking about, then when he talks about bulls, he's referring to Zebu, the Indian humpback cattle. The mention of peacocks also supports the idea that he's referring to the Harappan civilization. He proceeded to the land of Meluha. Enki, lord of the Abzu, decreed its fate. Black land, may your trees be great trees. Chairs made from them will grace royal palaces. May your bulls be great bulls. May their bellowing be the bellowing of wild bulls of the mountains. The great powers of the gods shall be made perfect for you. May the Francolins of the mountains wear carnelian beards. May your birds all be peacocks. May their cries grace royal palaces. May all your silver be gold. May all your silver be gold? I feel like William Jennings Bryant would like a word. May all your copper be tin bronze. May your men go forth like bulls against their fellow men. After Father Enki had lifted his eyes across the Euphrates, he stood up full of lust like a rampant bull, lifted his penis, ejaculated, and filled the Tigris with flowing water. 
He was like a wild cow mooing for its young in the wild grass, its scorpion-infested cow pen. By lifting his penis, he brought a bridal gift. The tigress rejoiced in its heart like a great wild bull when it was born. Uh, what? <laughs> By lifting his penis, no. he brought a bridal gift. Enki is like the semen. He's like the bull. He's like the cow. And he's ejaculating. Hey, wait, hey, yeah, he's literally ejaculating. Wait, he's the semen that is ejaculating. Yeah, yeah. And his penis is the bridal gift. Yes. <laughs> okay, okay. And and the tigress is also like a wild bull. Well, the tigress is literally his semen at this point. Yes, and if you follow the metaphor, also his son. Oh, okay. The Lord called the cultivated fields and bestowed on them mottled barley. Enki made chickpeas and lentils grow. He heaped up into piles the early mottled and inuha varieties of barley. Enki multiplied the stockpiles and stacks, and with Enlil's help, he enhanced the people's prosperity. Again, we see surplus agricultural goods are wealth, and civilization involves making piles of stuff. So here Enki invents weaving. He appoints to goddess Uttu, goddess of weaving. This is Uttu, not the male sun god Uttu. Here we see the common association between weaving and women's work. He picked out the toe from the fibers and set up the loom. Enki greatly perfected the task of women. Enki placed in charge of them Utu, the conscientious woman, the silent one. But for the first time, someone has a problem. We'll see who it is, but first. So we're still in the Ubaid period today, the earliest known period of settlement in the southern Mesopotamian Delta Plain. Last time we covered the Ubaid 0 through 1 periods between about 6500 and 5300 BC. Today, we'll finish up with Ubaid 2 through 5 periods between about 5300 and 4200 BCE. Taking a closer look at their culture, their distinctive style of pottery, their figurines, and their practice of shaping the heads of certain infants. During this period, the southern delta starts to interact more with the outside world, the Persian Gulf, southwestern Iran, and northern Mesopotamia. This interaction will peak in the early 4000s BCE, creating a new culture greater than the sum of its parts. See also episodes 10, 13, and 14. Then we're going to take a look at the prominent Ubaid site of Eridu, which we introduced last time. We're going to watch it grow into the biggest settlement in the north, and the one with the first monumental temple complex. Last episode covered up to the Ubaid I period, which ended sometime around 5300 BCE, or a little later. The Ubaid II period runs from then until about 5100. During this period, we see new sites on and near levees, suggesting that people are expending more effort controlling the flow of water from the top of these levee systems to the nearby fields and wetlands. Among them are Ur, founded on a levee near the rim of a marsh during the Ubaid II period, and some new sites in the area of Unuk or Uruk, both areas produce ceramic weights, likely for fishing nets, and spindle whorls, likely for spinning wool into yarn. At the same time, we see increasing water travel as far as the Gulf. Remember, by now, rising sea levels have brought the ocean within spitting distance of sites like Ur and Eridu, giving them better access to trade, travel, and subsistence in maritime environments. From now on, we'll see both freshwater and saltwater fish in temple offerings. Throughout the rest of the Ubaid period, sea levels will continue to rise, elevating the groundwater, decreasing drainage at plain level, and making flooding more common. This may explain why we see so many sites founded on high ground above the level of these floods. The same trends continue during the Ubaid III period between about 5100 and 4900 BCE. They're still building houses out of reed plastered with mud, bitumen, or animal dung, but mud bricks are becoming more common over time. This is when we see the first temple platform at Eridu, putting buildings on platforms likely originated as a way to elevate them above the flood water, and we see domestic houses on platforms from the beginning of the Ubaid period. However, this is when people start to build larger and more impressive monumental platforms for their temples and other public buildings, not only to keep them dry, but also to elevate them above the rest of the community, literally and likely symbolically. As we'll see, Eridu leads many of the trends which will transform Mesopotamia. The Ubaid IV period, between about 4900 and 4400 BCE, will see trade at the outside world peak and then decline. Lots of new sites are founded, indicating population growth. 
Almost all are founded on the exposed surfaces of turtlebacks, and about half are near the back slopes of levees, likely to control the flow of water downhill. The later megalopolis of Unug grew out of two small villages founded on a bird's foot delta around the spirit. A few villages sitting at the intersection of several trade routes, with a hinterland capable of supporting a larger population, will begin to grow into larger regional centers during this period, with monumental temple buildings administering much of the necessary agricultural production. Domestic houses from the spirit produced a total of 218 spindle worlds, indicating that the vast majority of textile production happened within the household rather than at these temple complexes. Other facilities may have been processing centers for fish, allowing fishermen to cut, salt, and smoke their catch away from home until they're ready to transport the fish back. Traces of plowing with a simple ard, discovered at sites like Eridu, Larsa, and Chogamami in central Mesopotamia, have been dated to around 4500 BCE, or the late Ubayid IV period. We'll talk more about the ramifications of plow agriculture in the northern Ubayid episode. The Ubayid V period, attested only at Tel el-Awaili, covers the period between about 4400 and 4200 BCE. The same period elsewhere is called the Terminal Ubayid. We don't have much material in general from the south between the late 4000s and the early 3000s BCE, partially because it was so far below the surface, and partially because these earlier levels were largely destroyed by later monumental construction. So, the term settlement hierarchy refers to a way to compare settlements of various sizes. So far, we've mostly dealt with small villages spread out across the landscape, all around the same size, which tend to dictate their own affairs. This would be a settlement hierarchy with a single tier. Occasionally, we've looked at some larger settlements with more monumental architecture, which appear to have administered some matters involving other, smaller villages in the area. This would be a two-tier hierarchy. Those two tiers being small villages and these larger towns. Starting during the late 5000s BCE, however, the southern delta will be defined by an increasingly stratified settlement hierarchy. In other words, Ubayid society was beginning to organize itself around a handful of large towns centered on temple households, which collected agricultural goods from not only that town's population, but also likely smaller villages in the area. In other words, this is when those villagers entered the familiar rhythm of rural life, spending most of their time at small settlements dedicated to farming, ranching, and in this case, foraging in the wetlands, but making occasional trips into town around harvest time and on major holidays and occasions when they needed access to specialized labor, professional potters, for instance. Within their villages, there was likely very little social hierarchy. Certain people may have held leadership positions or played prominent roles in religious rites, but as far as we can tell from the material record, nobody belonged to a higher social class than anyone else, as we might expect in these kinds of small rural villages organized on kinship lines. At the same time, settlements like Eridu grew into large towns with populations estimated between 1 and 4,000. I've already talked about collecting farm goods produced in nearby villages, but it's not clear what form this transfer took and whether it would be best described as tax, tribute, or temple offerings. It's also not clear how much nearby land was directly controlled by these temples, as in later periods, much of their income may have come from their fields. Either way, we see large storage facilities in these regional centers, capable of not only storing lots of grain, but roasting it for longer shelf life, baking it into bread, and brewing it into beer. All tasks previously done at the household level, but now being done on a larger and more industrial scale at these temples. As we'll see, starting at Eridu around 5000 BCE, these temples were built atop increasingly large temple platforms. This may have begun as a way to elevate buildings above seasonal floodwater, but it soon became integrated into the process of renovating existing temples. When the Mudbrook Temple was falling apart, the walls would be leveled down to a certain height, say a meter or so, and the floor space between them would be filled in with the resulting rubble, and sometimes with new bricks, until the heap of rubble inside the remains of the building was level with the tops of the walls, resulting in a wide, flat platform, roughly the shape of the old temple. They sometimes built this platform outward, laterally, to cover more ground space, or upwards to provide a taller foundation for the building on top. When they finally built the temple on top, its floor would sit well above the rest of the city. Given that these temple complexes often sat on the highest point of the mound already, many of these temples were likely visible from far away. We've talked before about the link between social authority and the ability to host a feast. Someone with a lot of connections calls in a bunch of favors to throw out a massive potluck, obligates all its guests to the host in some way. Over the next few episodes, we'll look at the concept of a work feast, or the idea that guests might be obligated to collaborate on some kind of labor project for the benefit of the host. 
This project might take the form of helping with the harvest, or helping dig irrigation ditches, or build fortification walls, or maybe even building a big fancy renovation of the local shrine for him, so he can show it off to his dinner guests next time they come around. The temple storehouses, full of grain, were equipped with the installations necessary to process all this grain into food for dozens of people. Would these dozens of guests be obligated to the god of the temple, or to one particular family? We'll talk more about this, but the short answer is that we don't know. Like I said, the Ubaid period is named after the so-called Ubaid material culture, named after the site of Tel al-Ubaid, which in practical terms refers to a lot of similar types of clay objects. Obviously pottery and figurines, but also tools, architectural styles, personal jewelry, and objects of unclear use. Ubaid villagers in the southern delta lived in a world of endless mud and water, but almost no stone, metal, or timber. However, since the entirety of the Ubaid period took place after the invention of pottery, they were well equipped to make all their own materials out of clay. We've talked about tripartite houses and temples, and we'll talk about communal cemeteries later today, but other hallmarks of Ubaid style include baked clay sickles, bent nail-shaped tools made of clay, which may have been for grinding, labrays or lip discs, clay discs which may have been worn as ornaments, conical pottery rings, and horn-shaped clay objects. The latter two may have had either a ritual or a practical purpose. The earliest pottery in the Delta is similar to Samara pottery, one of the pottery Neolithic styles from central Mesopotamia. We talked about Tel es Sawan and Chogomami in episode 10, and the pottery from Sabi Abyad in episode 8, and Chogomish in episode 10. Samara fine-painted pottery was fired in double-chamber updraft kilns with a baking chamber directly above the combustion chamber, which could fire these pots between 850 and 1050 degrees Celsius. A little farther north, standard everyday halaf pots were fired between 800 and 900 degrees Celsius, with fine painted pottery fired as high as 950 degrees. In other words, before the Ubaid period, 1050 degrees Celsius was the absolute maximum temperature achievable in Mesopotamian kilns. At this temperature threshold, some interesting chemical changes start to occur in the clay itself. Needle-shaped crystals of porcelainite form in a reaction which releases silica, making the clay harder and stronger. Above 1100 degrees Celsius, any silica not already combined with other chemicals changes to cristobalite with the same chemical formula as quartz, but a different chemical structure. During the Ubaid period, coarse everyday pottery was still fired at a lower temperature, but most painted pottery was fired between 900 and 1000 degrees Celsius. In other words, temperatures which used to be reserved for fine wear had become standard for all painted pottery. This produced so-called black-on-buff ware, that is yellow-brown clay decorated with black paint. Now, fine Ubaid pottery was fired in the same kind of double-chamber kilns, at temperatures ranging from 1050 to 1200 degrees Celsius. These high temperatures gave the clay a greenish color, and tapping the surface would make a metallic ringing sound. Potsherds from Tepegara, a town in northeast Mesopotamia, will visit in episode 14, dating to the late Ubaid period, or levels 14 through 13 at the site, were originally claimed to be fired around 1050 degrees Celsius, while others from the Ubaid were estimated as high as 1150 degrees Celsius. However, in 2016, Tatsundo Koizumi tested these numbers by using an electric kiln to reheat shards of Ubaid pottery, and found the Ubaid painted shirts fired over 1050 degrees Celsius, quote, melted like chocolate, end quote, indicating that these earlier estimates of firing temperature may be too high. Even if not, these temperatures aren't quite hot enough to produce porcelain, which forms over 1200 degrees Celsius. To prepare the paint to decorate this ware, potters would mix a lump of levigated clay with limestone and hematite to create the right texture for painting, and add iron-rich pigments to make red paint, or manganese-rich pigments for black. Then they would fire this mixture between 500 and 800 degrees Celsius, which is a low temperature for pottery, but still hot enough to burn out most of the impurities, ensuring that all these chemical reactions produced by this heat would happen now rather than after the paint is applied to the clay. Painted Ubaid shirts from Ur and Tel al-Ubaid always have traces of hematite and magnetite, with lots of titanium oxides and chromite. Manganese was absent from these samples. It appears to have been more common in the late 6000s, largely replaced by iron compounds in the 5000s BCE. Ubaid pottery from Aweli between about 6000 and 4500 BCE contains iron oxides like hematite and magnetite, iron titanium oxides, titanium, and chromium. It should go without saying that all of these minerals had to be imported from outside the alluvium, likely along the same route which would later carry this painted pottery. 
During the earlier Halaf period in the north, pots were made entirely by hand, with lots of intricate painted designs, at the pace of a regular person decorating the pots they would use in daily life. In other words, people appear to have made pots for their own use as needed, rather than relying on full-time potters. The Ubaid, however, saw the invention of the slow pottery wheel, also called the tournette, or a round surface rotating around a central pivot. By placing a lump of clay and rotating the disc, potters could ensure more rotational symmetry than in a pot made by hand. This invention also allowed them to produce more pots more quickly, which may suggest economic pressure towards more production or export. In other words, if they were making more pots, it may have been because they had more stuff to transport in pots, whether that was grain, beer, dairy products, oil, wine, or any other product. At sites like Eridu, we see entire pottery workshops, often concentrated on the edge of town to avoid blowing smoke and ash into the rest of the town. Rather than farmers and herders making their own pots when they break the old one, these appear to be staffed by teams of full-time potters, possibly working for the local temple. In other words, a minority of the population spends the majority of their productive time on a particular skilled craft rather than growing food. This is one of the basic features of social complexity, a topic we'll discuss more in the Ubaid Temple episode. As we'll see, the increasing industrialization of pottery production will result in a decrease in decoration over time. Since one couldn't paint intricate designs on the side of a rotating pot, these tended to be replaced by simple, linear designs, produced by holding a paintbrush still against a moving surface of the pot. With their usual colonial condescension, the authors of the Cambridge Ancient History aren't impressed by this decline in pottery decoration. Quote. The painted wares found at the bottom of Eridu are artistically highly developed and elaborate in design, end quote. but over time, quote, the pottery lost its fullness of design and tended towards repetition and a more mechanical output of relatively limited shapes. End quote. So I've mentioned so-called Ophidian figurines a couple times. The name comes from the Greek word for snake, referring to the apparently reptilian shape of their heads. Their eyes are shaped like coffee beans, maybe based on the shell eyes of earlier Neolithic statues. They wear a tall black headdress, wig, or crown, and sometimes what appears to be a striped dress, or maybe jewelry. Female figures sometimes appear naked or holding a child. One nude male figure from Eridu is holding what appears to be a scepter. These figures appear to have evolved from a central Mesopotamian style of figurine. They appear throughout the Ubaid period at all major Ubaid sites, Eridu, Al-Ubaid, Ur, Unug, Nippur, and so on, in both domestic and funerary contexts, alongside domestic tools like sickles, grinders, and spindle whorls. This indicates that they had a practical use in daily life, rather than merely being produced or used in religious contexts. They appear to depict a narrow range of archetypes, rather than depicting particular individuals. They may represent gods, legendary figures, or idealized social roles like the ideal woman. Of 121 realistically modeled figurines, 79% are female, 17% are of undetermined sex, and only 4% are male. That is, even if all the androgynous figures represented men, four-fifths of all figurines would still be female. These figurines tend to have long, slender bodies with wide shoulders, skinny hips, and small breasts on female figurines. This style has been interpreted as a representation of an adolescent girl, comparable to the Kore statues of Greek goddesses like Persephone, as opposed to the mature woman represented by the Venus figurines in the north. However, given that a minority, under 3%, of these slender female figurines carry children, this may have just been a particular artistic way to represent adult women. Male figurines are sculpted in a similar style, with painted beards, hammer-shaped heads, and strong angular shoulders, possibly to project strength. I mentioned the figurine at Eridu of a nude male wearing a necklace and holding a scepter, which may have marked him as a formal leader of some sort. Many figurines of both sexes are decorated. Besides the black painted dresses I mentioned at Eridu, some are decorated with little dots of black paint or clay pellets across their shoulders and torso. This may represent jewelry, tattoos, body paint, or scarification, possibly related to some religious festival or a coming-of-age ritual. As we'll see, only adults were buried with these figurines and not children, so they may be associated with adulthood in some sense. Some scholars have drawn connection to modern Iraqi traditions of decorating oneself with coal or henna. Unlike other aspects of Ubaid material culture, these Ophidian figurines don't appear to have spread out of the southern delta. Like we'll talk about in the northern Ubaid episodes, villages like Tepe Gaura continued making their northern-style Venus figurines, even after adopting so many other features of Ubaid society. This may indicate that, 
Whatever aspects of social or cultural identity crossed over between societies and regions, people would still maintain some of their most private and personal traditions. I mentioned that these figurines tend to have a weirdly shaped head elongated in the back. We see similar figurines in South and Southwestern Iran at sites like Tal-e-Bakun, which we'll cover in a future episode. Like I said, this may be some kind of crown or headdress, but it's likely that it has to do with another cultural practice shared between the Southern Delta and Southwestern Iran. So during the first two years of life, the human skull is soft enough to be molded with bandages, cradle boards, or other devices. If you prevent the skull from growing in one direction, you can force it to grow in a different direction. Since most growth in the parietal bone expands the top and back of the head, you could force the skull to grow backwards by binding a child's head with tight headbands, resulting in a long, skinny skull. Ubaid villagers practiced a technique called circumferential head shaping. A minority of children were selected to have one or two bands tied around their head like a headband. This is irreversible after the bone hardens around age two, and it doesn't affect brain function. In other words, when the child grows up, they will have a permanently distinctive head shape, but they'll be otherwise able to participate as a normal member of the community. This practice appears to have begun in Neolithic southwestern Iran, appearing at Ganj Dere around 8000 BCE, at Ali Kosh around 7000, and at Chogamish in the late 6000s. During the Ubay period, we see evidence of head shaping at 14 sites across West Asia, including Eridu in the south, where it was common. Like I said, not all children had their head shaped. It may have been a way to mark certain children as significant from birth, possibly as a marker of inherited status. Although it didn't affect cognition, it would have made it more difficult to carry heavy loads on one's head, so it may have marked membership in a social class exempt from manual labor in some sense. If so, this may have been a way to reinforce an existing social difference between families or maybe social classes by creating a tangible physical difference, which would then reify and reinforce the distinction between those identities. We might see a modern parallel among the Yoruk, a nomadic people in modern Turkey. Yoruk identity is less ethnic or genetic than cultural. In other words, one becomes Yoruk by being raised in their community, not necessarily by virtue of their bloodline. To reinforce this cultural identity, they flattened the back of their baby's heads, resulting in an extra little bump at the base of the skull. They call this bump Yuruk look, which translates to the state of being Yuruk. In other words, the style of head shaping is a way to reinforce a sense of intangible cultural identity by creating a physical difference in all children raised by the Yuruk. This may explain the shape of the Ophidian figurines' heads. They're not shaped exactly like people who had their skulls head shaped. Some are more triangular, like a chameleon head, and some scholars have identified these as representations of masks rather than the shape of these people's skulls as such. Anyway, let's finish up this episode by returning to Eridu. This is the first and oldest city in the Sumerian legendary tradition in the far southern delta, bordering both the Persian Gulf and the Arabian Desert. Last episode, we covered its foundation during the 5000 BCE, culminating in two consecutive occupation levels, where a temple complex of the city's patron god Enki appears to have been abandoned. So we're to start around 5000 BCE today. Around this time, baked clay sickles become much more common, suggesting an increased focus on growing grain relative to fishing and hunting in the wetlands. However, they likely also use sickles to harvest reeds, so their ubiquity might also indicate a greater need for reeds to fuel ovens and pottery kilns. So let's start with the early 4000s BCE, coinciding with a peak of cultural interaction with the broader region. Temple 11, the first building on the side of the temple, after that hiatus I mentioned, stands on the oldest known monumental platform in Mesopotamia, which served to raise it above the rest of the city, both literally and symbolically. A construction crew leveled the existing walls down to a height of about one meter, built a containing wall around the sand-filled ruins of the earlier building, and added more filling until it was level. In other words, rather than using mud bricks like litter platforms, they built this platform mostly out of sand and existing masonry. This platform incorporated a number of existing shrines, along with their altars and offering tables, which probably served to consolidate several different religious identities into a single temple household. A formerly constructed ramp led from the ground level to the top of this platform, 1 meter tall, 1.2 meters wide, and 4.5 meters long. The outside had a narrow channel to drain rainwater, the first known instance of this feature, which would later appear at sites like Tel Ukair. The platform would later be extended, again not with solid brickwork, but instead with a framework of narrow, unplastered walls filled in with rubble. The ramp would eventually be replaced with a brick stairway. Last episode, I said that Temple 16 had two of the major hallmarks of Mesopotamian temples. 
However, Temple 11 is the first building here which is certainly a temple. In addition to its altar and offering table, with evidence of burning and piles of ash, the exterior walls were decorated with alternating buttresses and recesses, a style of ornamentation we'll talk more about in the Ubaid Temple episode. The temple itself is 15 meters long, or about 50 feet, with a large central sanctuary, 4.5 meters wide, and at least 12.6 meters long. Like I said, the tripartite design is characterized by one long hallway, in this case the sanctuary, flanked by sets of side rooms. Throughout this level, and the next two, this building would have had three rooms to the southeast, connected to a hallway leading behind the altar. One of these rooms contained a burnt rectangular platform covered with ash, likely another offering table. Like I said, when Temple 11 fell apart, they leveled the old temple, erected the platform over the ruins, and built the new temple with the same basic layout. This is Temple 10. In addition to the long central sanctuary and the altar at one end, it also had the same three rooms on the southeast side connected to the same hallway. Now, for the first time, a long passageway with buttresses in the walls leads from the main doorway to the sanctuary. Later in the spirit, they would extend the platform outwards again, another eight meters, using the same techniques they used to build the original platform. Meanwhile, we also have a domestic house from the same period. Unlike the monumental mud brick temple, this house is made of reed bundles, plastered on both sides with clay. Its walls were only 15 centimeters thick, or about six inches. It had several rooms, two of which had low earthen tables, possibly for cooking, as well as a clay bin for storing grain, a clay oven with a pot inside, clay net sinkers, and various other types of pottery. After it was abandoned, the house filled with drift sand for the nearby desert. Like its predecessor, Temple 9 hewed to the same basic layout as Temple 11. The new platform extended 3 meters beyond the face of the building. The sanctuary measured 10 by 4.1 meters, with a mud brick altar against the southwest wall. The same three rooms to the southeast, connected to the same hallway. One of these rooms, accessible to both the sanctuary and an outdoor terrace, contained an offering table. A dog figurine from the Zovel, decorated with black stripes, was found with its feet and tail broken off, likely because it was originally created as an ornament on the outside of a big pot. Other small objects in this period include spindle whorls, stone celts, a stone axe with traces of a bitumen handle, beads of obsidian and frit, and a green stone bead decorated with a leaf pattern. Anyway, by way of wrapping up this section, this period in Eridu's history, marked by temples 11 through 9, saw the expansion of an increasingly monumental temple building, both upwards and outwards over time. Many hallmarks of later temples appear during this period, not only Mesopotamia's first temple platform, but also buttressed recess walls, drainage systems, and perhaps most importantly, its sheer size relative to every other building in the region up to that point. This monumentality, in other words, the increasing amount of labor invested in building and rebuilding this temple, likely reflects its growing importance to the region at large, administering a great deal of the local economy and likely presiding over important religious rites. As during later periods, people may have traveled to this temple from far away to make offerings or to trade with those pilgrims. So we've moved forward in time by now. It's currently the late Ubayid period between 4500 and 4200 BC, after the end of extensive interaction with the Gulf and northern Mesopotamia. I said the Ubayid 5 period is only represented at Tel el that is true, the material culture here at Eridu is still the Ubaid 4 period. Anyway, by now, Eridu has grown to an area of 12 hectares, with a population estimated anywhere between 1,000 and 4,000 people. The same 12-hectare mound will continue to serve as the Acropolis, or upper city, of the city of Eridu for over 2,000 years. Seven new villages founded nearby likely attest to population growth in the region. This marks the beginning of Eridu's heyday between about 4,500 and 3,500 BCE. Eridu was the largest and likely the most important city in southern Mesopotamia. This likely explains why later Mesopotamians considered it the first city in human history, and why its patron god Enki figures so prominently in Sumerian creation myths. I mentioned the large pottery workshop on the outskirts of Eridu, likely to avoid blowing smoke and ash into the town itself. Archaeologists have found lots of the resulting Ubayid potsherds on the surface, since the wind blows away the surrounding sand, but not the shard itself. The first temple during this late Ubayid period is Temple 8, which represents a major reorganization of the temple complex. The building is much larger, about 12 by 21 meters, built on a much larger platform. But the sanctuary is only about 62.5 square meters, not much larger than that of Temple 15, the better part of a millennium earlier. This might indicate that, although the entire building is accommodating much larger numbers of people, 
The actual religious rituals conducted in the sanctuary itself only require a small number of people. Like its predecessor, the sanctuary has an altar in front of the southwest wall, now with a narrow step leading to it in front. Two monumental projections on either side were likely built to emphasize this altar. Also, on the northeast end, the sanctuary houses a mud brick offering table with the same dimensions as the altar. It's 20 by 30 meters square and 20 centimeters tall. Also, with its northeast end aligned with architectural projections on the nearby walls. Like the others, this offering table preserves evidence of burning and piles of ashes nearby. Opposite a pair of twin doorways into the sanctuary at the southwest end of the building are a pair of what appear to be false doors, which create niches facing towards the altar from behind. These may be purely decorative, or they may have been used for some kind of ritual purpose. One of these niches held a spouted vessel shaped like a tortoise full of fish bones, which were likely placed there as an offering. If so, this god appears to have presided over the aquatic creatures of the nearby wetland, like his later Sumerian counterpart, Enki. The same three rooms appear, this time a little farther to the south. One of them had its own entrance from the terrace I mentioned. A group of objects buried beneath the pavement of the sanctuary, near the western corner of the altar, contains some objects similar to the clay nails or grinding tools I mentioned, extremely fragile and about a foot long. Other small objects on this level include tools of flint and obsidian, a bone point with traces of bitumen, and a frit stamp seal depicting an insect. Whereas Temple 8 represented a major reorganization, Temple 7 was merely a renovation of the same basic plan as its predecessor. However, they did make a few minor changes, including axing the false doors. They leveled the walls down to 1.5 meters and filled them in to make a platform, albeit a smaller one. A staircase led from the base of the platform up to the front door. This is the first such monumental staircase known, but it would become a common feature of buildings from the 2000s BCE onwards. The altar and offering table in the sanctuary were taller this time, 85 and 60 centimeters respectively, or about 3 feet and 2 feet, instead of less than 1. Likely so priests didn't have to sit down or bend over to use them. The floor contains two different pavements separated by about 40 centimeters of piled up debris, including a large amount of fish bones. More on that later. This level of the temple produced two halves of a clay snake decorated with circles on lines and brown paint, its head near the southern corner of the sanctuary, and its body inside the altar. When it had outlived its usefulness, workers leveled the walls of Temple 7 down to about 1.2 meters and packed the space between them with mud bricks. They used the same kind of bricks to build a new platform, extending outwards to the south for a total of 375 square meters. The new sanctuary was 14.4 by 3.7 meters, longer but covering less ground than its predecessors. The south corner had a low bench, like the kind which would later house Sumerian votive statues. Deep niches in the short wall at the northeast end appear to be vestigial survivals of the twin doors back from Temple 8. They appear to be repeated at the opposite end behind the altar. Side rooms on both sides of the sanctuary are painted with white lime wash over mud plaster. The floors are covered with scattered fragments of votive pottery and a few complete pots. The northeast facade of the building is ornamented with alternating buttresses and recesses. Small objects include beads of carnelian, blue frit, and white marble, and a veined marble pendant depicting a seated human figure. The offering table in this temple was much larger than its forebears, 160 by 90 centimeters and 65 centimeters tall. It was covered in plaster, which had been burnt dark red and covered in ashes. Likewise, the entire northeastern end of the sanctuary was covered with ashes mixed with the bones of fish and other small animals. These ashes were thickest at the edge of the pavement, where the base of the wall was worn. They had apparently plastered the walls without removing the ashes, resulting in ashes under both coats of plaster, extending several centimeters into the brickwork beyond them. These appear to be offerings to the god of the temple. We have only disarticulated fragments and no complete skeletons. These fish were likely eaten afterwards, and the fact they left the debris in place may indicate some kind of religious prohibition against moving it. A room nearby this offering table may have been for burning the parts of fish not used in the offering itself. This room was filled with ash and burned bones, overflowing into the sanctuary itself. Unlike later offering tables in cities like Unug, this offering table was not replastered between each ritual. More fish cuddles remain from the same kind of offering attested earlier. Some of these fish are from the Persian Gulf rather than from the nearby freshwater wetlands. They may have held more ritual importance because they came from farther away. Boat models and contemporary tombs indicate the importance of seafaring to Ubaid society at the time. Eventually, Temple 6 began to collapse. A breach opened up in one of the walls, and they opted to patch it up at first, before apparently deciding to start over from scratch. 
They bricked up the old walls and doorways and filled the interior with rubble, but it's not clear whether they built a new building on top or just abandoned it. Either way, this is the end of the Ubaid period at Eridu, around 4200 BCE. The next level will mark the beginning of the Uruk period, which we'll cover later. For all the apparent centralization of political, social, and economic power in these temples, Ubaid burial practices actually show no clear signs of status or wealth inequality. Very few graves have expensive grave goods. Most people were buried with a basic set of pottery and maybe a clay figurine. Some people were buried in mud brick tombs. Others were laid on a reed mat or directly in the dirt. In fact, this time spent making labor-intensive brick tombs may represent the only such status disparity. In other words, some people may have been important enough for someone to build them a brick tomb, while others weren't. During the Neolithic, mortuary rituals tended to bring people into physical contact with the dead. We've talked about the reuse of defleshed skulls long after the death of their original owner in pre-pottery Neolithic Syro-Palestine and at Shushal Haryuk. Remember, we have many babies buried in jars underneath houses and public buildings from sites, which produce very few adult burials, suggesting that adults may have been disposed of by some means other than burial. However, the Ubaid represents a transition away from this kind of visceral, tactile contact and towards a tradition a little more familiar to modern Westerners, burying people of all ages soon after death with their body intact in areas set aside as cemeteries. Throughout the Ubaid, some people were buried with animal figurines, mostly cattle, but also other animals, including birds. For a short period at the end of the Ubaid, coinciding with the use of the cemetery at Eridu, people were also buried with human figurines, which had previously only been found in domestic contexts. Like I said, most of these are female figurines, sometimes with children, a minority are clearly male with painted beards, and these human figurines will disappear from graves again by the end of the Ubaid. We're going to spend the rest of this episode looking at the late Ubaid cemetery at Eridu, which I mentioned. It contained at least 200 tombs, lined and capped with mud brick. The entire cemetery may have originally held as many as a thousand people. It's located outside the main Acropolis Mound, near a breach in the southwest retaining wall. The graves are dug down into earlier occupational debris, usually down to the clean sand below. The nearest graves to Temple 6 are about 80 meters away, but this was likely the outer fringe of the town at the time. Farther to the southeast were domestic houses with mud brick walls. Like I mentioned, many of the people buried here had their heads shaped as infants. So many of these people were buried in rectangular brick tombs. To build the ideal tomb, one should build a grave shaft, ideally down to the clean sand below earlier occupation layers, and then build a brick box, half a brick thick, with no foundation or pavement, up to a height of about 10 courses. Then lay the dead body on their back on the clean sand, with their head pointing to the northwest and their feet to the southeast, the same direction as the river and all temples, with their hands folded over their waist. Lay the grave goods in the corner near their right foot, Everyone has at least a basic set of a jar, a dish, and a cup. The jar is always upright, and the cup is usually lying down or upside down, sometimes inside the jar. To seal the tomb back up, cover the body with dirt up to the tops of the walls, and seal the whole thing off with at least one course of bricks extending outwards beyond the walls you just built. Mourners appear to have laid down food offerings late in the burial ritual, either just before or just after this top layer of bricks was laid. This may be connected to a tradition of a funeral feast. Near one tomb, with the top ceiling broken, were three bodies laid in the clean sand in the normal position with no brick tombs. They might have held too low a status to merit a tomb, or they may be executed prisoners or criminals. Speaking of which, one burial contained a complete adult skeleton, correctly laid down, as I described earlier. However, to quote the 1981 book on Eridu by Fuad Safar et al., he was also buried with, quote, the crushed remains of a dozen separate skulls, and a few fragmentary remains of other bodies, end quote, which they interpret as, quote, the result of some tribal raid, end quote. Many graves contained more than one body, but none had more than two adult skeletons, which may suggest a monogamous society. When there is a third body in the grave, it's always a child. Some graves with two bodies are built wider, possibly because both had already died when the grave was dug. In order to add a second body to the grave, break through the upper layer of mud bricks, remove the fill, and dig down to the original body. If it hasn't decayed yet, lay the new body on top of the old one. But if it has, it's fine to shove the old bones aside. To quote the Cambridge Asian History again, quote, It was not unusual for the preceding bones to be roughly pushed aside. An irreverent clumsiness, which remained a regular feature of later Babylonian burial practice. End quote. Like I said, when some children died, they're added to an adult's existing grave, presumably its parents or other caretakers, 
often in a sitting position near the adult's head. No infants are buried in jars at Eridu, like at some other Ubaid sites like Tel Abada. However, other children were buried in their own brick tombs with their own child-sized pottery. Notably, no children are buried with human figurines, which may suggest that these symbolize some rite of passage which these children had not attained yet. One youth, 15 or 16 years old, was buried with normal-sized grave goods in a brick box. Across their lap, someone had laid a dog with a meat bone in its mouth. Another grave held two dogs, less well-preserved. These three dogs all resemble modern Saluki hunting dogs. They may have been used for chasing hares and gazelles in the desert. Contemporary Tepe Gawra in the north, Susa in southwestern Iran, and later levels of Eridu all also produce seals depicting dogs. Many people here were buried with bead necklaces, bracelets, or other jewelry, including strands of beads worn around the neck. The vast majority of beads are made of obsidian, which is not only difficult to grind, but also occurs far to the north in the Anatolian mountains. Obsidian varies widely in color, from black to a range of translucent colors like red or green. White beads are made of shell, including freshwater shellfish. One woman's grave, burial 68, held the male figurine I mentioned earlier, as well as two bands, one of white threaded beads around her waist and the other of closely threaded black beads, six centimeters wide, around her shin bones. This may have been the fringe of the same kind of striped dress depicted in figurines, or it may have simply been two bands of beads without a garment. A pair of earrings, small cylindrical obsidian pegs pierced at one end, was found on both sides of a skull, presumably worn into the grave. Among other jewelry, the cemetery also produced two small pink stone rings and a small group of three pierced beads near one skull's mouth, which may have been a nose ornament, but no copper pins or other metal objects. I mentioned the male figurine in the same woman's grave before, the nude man holding a scepter with an ophidian face, clay pellets on his chest and shoulders, and a long conical black head colored with bitumen, holding a mace or stick in his left hand. This is the only known complete male Ubaid figurine. Similarly, the cemetery also produced two top halves of a female figurine, the top half of a woman with pellets on her shoulders, a woman missing her head, hands, and feet, and the head of what may be a camel. One grave was also dug through earlier occupation layers, which contained the broken middle of a female figurine. So, the cemetery also contained several small clay models of boats, as we'll talk about in the Persian Gulf episode. This particular Ube trait appeared not just in the southern delta and the northern river valleys, but also at gulf sites like Asabia in Kuwait. Most of these appeared in graves, suggesting some kind of religious use, but one appeared in a domestic context. Two of these were fragmentary, and neither appeared to have a sail, which were only useful on the ocean, not while traveling through wetlands. One painting of a boat from that site in Kuwait may or may not depict masts for a sail. Later boat models from the 2nd millennium BCE depict masts stuck through the clay bottom of the model without a socket form. I bring it up because one clay model of a boat from the cemetery appears to include a socket for what was assumed to be a mast. Some archaeologists reconstructed it by adding a wooden mast and stringing up rigging through the holes in the side. However, in a 1996 article, Ken Strasser argued that this particular object was not a boat model at all. Instead, he says, this is probably a spinning bowl for plying thread that is twisting two or more strands of fiber together to make the resulting string stronger. Combed fibers can tangle up when they're spun, so in order to keep them from untwisting, you have to keep the string taut, and it helps to get the string wet by filling the bowl with water and running that string through it. He said similar spinning bowls depicted in art from Egypt, Minoan Crete, and early colonial Mexico, the latter two of which include an inner loop or socket to keep the string tight while running it through the water in the bowl. The socket I mentioned may have held a spindle, which would have spun in place in that socket, as one pulled the thread through the loop. Whether or not this particular object is a spinning bowl or a boat model, women are often buried with textile equipment in historical periods. As we'll see, weaving is one of the primary productive industries staffed primarily by women in various states of freedom in Mesopotamian history, and one with a high mortality rate according to the records. As we've talked about, labor specialization is accelerating during the Ubaid period, with more production enabling more long-distance trade and vice versa. As elites become nodes through which long-distance trade flows, they'll take an increasingly active role in coordinating and supervising productive labor. More on this later. So previously, the god Enki created the world and assigned every god a role, but one of them had a problem. Then, alone lacking any functions, the great woman of heaven, Inanna, came in to see her father Enki in his house. Weeping to him, 
and making her complaint to him. Enlil left it in your hands to confirm the functions of the great gods. Why did you treat me, the woman, in an exceptional manner? I am holy Inanna. Where are my functions? So Inanna lists her sister's jobs. Aruru, the lady of giving birth, whose accoutrements include birth bricks, special sand, leeks, and a translucent lapis bowl for the afterbirth, along with Ninisina, the goddess of jewelry, Ninmug, the goddess of metalworking, whose supplies include a golden chisel, a silver burin, and crowns, Nisaba, the goddess of scribes and grain, as well as measuring boundaries, and Nanshe, a major goddess from the city of Lagash, quote, who rests her feet on the holy pelican, end quote. She is a goddess of fish. Why does Aruru... She's the only one without an N sound in her name. Yeah, so Nin is the Sumerian word for lady. Oh, so, so like, the rest of them are just named Lady What's It. Yeah, Lady of whatever. Okay, okay. Yeah, but Aruru is the goddess that made Enkidu out of clay in episode four. Oh, okay, Enkidu. Oh, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. So her complaint with him is not that he's made weaving and then assigned it to someone else. Her complaint is that he hasn't given her a job right, to do. Exactly. Go find your own job, lady. Right. But Inanna continues. But why did you treat me, the woman, in an exceptional manner? I am holy Inanna. Where are my functions? Enki answered his daughter, holy Inanna. Goddess, how have I disparaged you? How can I enhance you? I made you speak as a woman with pleasant voice. I clothed you in garments of women's power. I put women's speech in your mouth. I placed in your hands the spindle and the hairpin. I settled on you the staff and the crook, with the shepherd's stick beside them. So women's speech may be a reference to emesal, which was a dialect or register of Sumerian that was used exclusively by women in some literary texts. So some people have theorized that it might be a women's dialect. Uh, Have you heard of those? Yeah, maybe not necessarily spoken, I've heard of them, but it's not unbelievable given that Japanese has really specific mannerisms of speech for women Mm. and men, specifically in pronouns and in just formal deferential natures to other people. Right. But also, their two syllabaries, katakana and hiragana, were initially meant for men and women separately. Wow. Hiragana was specifically the women's writing system, and katakana was meant more for military work. Huh. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, the only example I know of a separate women's dialect is the Caribs, like the indigenous people of the Lesser Antilles. You know, the prevailing theory is that at some point before the Europeans showed up, a group of male warriors had essentially like conquered the area and killed most of the men and married the women. Oh. And then the, the difference between the like related languages, but different dialects. Mm-hmm. Um, had preserved in kind of like tradition. Male children would learn the male dialect and so on. It's not impossible, just uncommon, I believe. You know, in certain African tribes, the children only learn their mother's language, right. but that's not really a, a gender-based thing. All of the male children also learn their mother's right. language. That makes sense. This may be when Inanna officially receives her designation as a goddess of war and a goddess of young women. Maiden Inanna, how have I disparaged? How can I enhance you? Amongst the ominous occurrences in the hurly-burly of battle, I shall make you speak vivifying words. And in its midst, although you are not a bird of ill omen, I shall make you speak ill-omened words also. I made you tangle straight threads, Maiden Inanna. I made you straighten out tangled threads. I made you put on garments. I made you dress in linen. I made you pick out the toe from the fibers... I made you spin with the spindle. I made you color tufted cloth with colored threads. Inanna, you heap up human heads like piles of dust. You sow heads like seed. Inanna, you destroy what should not be destroyed. You create what should not be created. You never grow weary with admirers looking at you. Maiden Inanna, you know nothing of tying the ropes on deep wells. 
No, no, I, I do love the contrast of just like very getting really into the weeds in like textile terminology and also it's mm-hmm. like, oh, so you cut off a bunch of heads. Yeah, right? Does he mean she literally was just murdering people? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. so. Yeah, in episode two, when Inerta goes to battle, he's also described as reaping heads like wheat. You know, cutting <sighs> off a whole bunch of them with a with blade. Wow, she's been murdering a heck of a lot of people then. Yeah. She is the goddess of war. And destroying. But now, he's only decided she's the god of war now, yeah. after she's done all this destruction. Mm-hmm. So really, really, he's not the one choosing what she's being. She's the one who right. already chose. Right. And he's just saying, hey, you've got a job. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Yeah. When he says, you know nothing of tying the ropes on deep wells, mm-hmm. is this meant to be literal or is the well like a metaphor for the human race it well it's a good question i think there's a there's a literal dimension of it because it's literally manual labor for agriculture mm-hmm. so literally you, you know it takes work to, to pull up the water from the well and tie but this is it. the tying of the ropes mm-hmm. and she did do the tangling straight threads and right, right. straightening tangled threads so i don't really the tying part gets me that's a good point that i really think of so the rest of the text is broken, so it's not clear whether or not Inanna is satisfied with Enki's bequest. Okay.